Welcome to our quarterly podcast, where we share our macroeconomic updates and portfolio performance over the last three months. I'm Helen Watson, the CEO of the UK Wealth Management Business, and I'm joined as usual by Kevin Gardner, our Global Investment Strategist, and Hugo Cable Cure, our Co-Head of Portfolio Management. As always, at the end of the quarter, we sit down and think about what might be helpful to highlight to you as our clients and think about the sort of questions that you would want to have answered by us. So as uh, the coronavirus restrictions begin to ease a little bit in the UK, and whilst we are all still, in theory, working from home, I have to confess, actually being in the office today, I hope you and your families are staying healthy and safe. At the end of March, our expectations were pretty much turned upside down by the dramatic measures that were put in place to control the virus. Kevin, as we think about the second quarter, how has the outlook continued to change? Thanks, Helen. Well, it's remained a pretty pretty volatile one, but in the other direction. So after the dramatic stock market plunge that we saw in the first quarter, we saw a pretty big rebound in the second quarter. In fact, I think it was in the top 10 of the all-time strongest quarters that the US stock market has, uh, has ever seen. And in the US stock market, as that was happening, we were seeing the fastest ever bull market quickly following on the heels of the fastest ever bear market. So it's been pretty exceptional. And it had actually started the last time we, we, we spoke. We did suggest on the previous call that the markets were trying to stabilise. Uh, little did we know, though, that they would go on to stabilise as decisively as uh, they seem to have done in the quarter as a whole. In terms of other assets, it's not just stocks that did quite well. Corporate bonds did pretty well, including the riskiest sorts of corporate bonds, what we call junk bonds or speculative grade bonds. Uh, they did pretty well. Oil also did pretty well, but it had quite a roller coaster ride along the way. Briefly in April, the futures price for West Texas Intermediate Oil actually turned negative. But as I say, it subsequently turned around and rebounded pretty strongly. But uh, just as stocks, corporate bonds, some commodities were doing pretty well, at the same time, a lot of safe haven assets managed to hang on to the gains that they'd made during that really volatile first quarter. In fact, some government bonds hit new highs. Uh, we saw the gold price surge. Gold is seen as a safe haven asset. And safer, in quotes, currencies like the dollar, the yen, and the Swiss franc also stayed relatively firm. They didn't sell off in the way that they might have done, given what was happening to uh, the stock markets. Why did stocks bounce in the way that they did? Well, uh, one of the many ways in which this downturn in economies and the earlier downturn in markets has been unusual is it's, it's been a deliberate downturn. We, we effectively closed a big chunk of the global economy to deal with the virus. And because of that, we did feel from the outset that it might prove a relatively short-lived downturn. And you can see just recently that the chief economist at the Bank of England has come around to seeing things in, in, in this way also because he's noting that uh, the UK economy has begun to rebound quite briskly. And stock markets usually look forwards, not backwards. They tend to look across the valley, as we say. And what's been happening, of course, is that contagion has slowed, as we thought it might do in most, most places. And as it's slowed, lockdowns have been able to loosen and economies have been able to reopen once again. And as I say, not just in the UK, as I speak globally, the economic data are rebounding pretty strongly. And the stock market was effectively trying to anticipate that, as it usually does. We haven't seen all of the bad news on economies and corporate profits. We haven't had full data for the second quarter just yet. And when that comes out, it's a safe bet it'll be pretty horrible. But within the quarter, 
the monthly and higher frequency data, as I say, are already starting to move once again back in the right direction. And at the same time, of course, even as economies are reviving, it's unlikely that the huge fiscal and monetary support from governments and central banks is going to be taken off the table anytime soon. In fact, just here in the UK, we're hearing just today about uh, still further fiscal measures aimed at trying to, uh, to support the economy. So you've got a combination of a forward-looking market anticipating a rebound in the economy alongside some policy settings, which are really very friendly indeed. And that helps explain uh, the stock market's rally, which is, it's been a bit faster and a bit bigger than we might have anticipated, but it's, it's not a huge, huge surprise. And it ought not to have come as a, a huge, huge surprise, I would, I would suggest. Obviously, there are risks remaining still, and I'll come on to those in a second. But you might feel, well, given all that, that's all well and good, but why have safe haven assets continue to do quite well? Well, they've continued to do quite well alongside stock markets because, well, because those policy programs are not going to be taken off the table anytime soon. We're going to see central banks continuing to buy bonds for quite a while, and we're going to see official interest rates stay at low levels for the foreseeable future. So it's almost, uh, almost the best of both worlds, as it were. Stocks have been able to rally in anticipation of a rebound in the economy. Government bonds have stayed strong because they can see that interest rates are going to stay low and central banks will continue to, uh, to buy them. Now, of course, there are still risks out there, lots of risks, uh, including a, the possibility of a second wave. And it's also possible that uh, consumer habits will change. There may be some systemic risks still lurking in some financial institutions, but those risks are balanced by some positives as well. And as far as they're concerned uh, directly, in the US, I don't think we're seeing a second wave at the moment in terms of contagion. I know some people are suggesting that's what it could be, but to us it looks to be more like a prolonged first wave, which is really percolating to states and regions in the United States uh, that it didn't, uh, it didn't reach uh, earlier on. And quite intriguingly, fatality rates seem to have been uh, significantly lower in recent weeks, even as contagion in the US has, has remained relatively high. In terms of consumer habits, it's possible that they will change, but it's easy to forget that not everybody can afford to save more. So I think consumers will spend. Many people will feel that they have to get out there and, and spend once again. And as far as banking risk is concerned, so far most banks to us look to be relatively liquid. So that systemic risk, it's still there, but it seems not to be as potent, perhaps, as it uh, might otherwise have, have been. And certainly, we don't see any rerunners yet, the sort of banking risk that we saw back in 2008. And more positively, as I say, there are some positive developments out there. Um, across the channel in the uh, continental European economy, we're seeing some interesting things happen institutionally. We're seeing Germany, for the first time, embracing a more federalist European Union. And what that's doing very, very slowly, very gradually, is it's underpinning the credibility of the euro. And it's increasing the possibility that some of the big discounts attached to the prices of some eurozone assets, like eurozone stocks, maybe some of those discounts will start to, uh, to reduce. Lastly, I guess in all this, um, we do feel that, uh, that you know, we don't quite escape completely unscathed longer term in an economic and financial sense from this horrible crisis. We do think that there is some lingering inflation risk that's likely to come through on the back of these very generous support packages which are being left in place even as economies revive. So we do worry a little bit about inflation risk, but for the time being, the consumer price indices 
if we can take them at face value, I guess, but the indices that we've got are actually softening, they're not firming up, uh, which at the very least, I suppose, means that uh, cash is still a pretty plausible safe haven for investors, even if it also means, again, that government bonds are likely to stay quite expensive uh, for quite a while, uh, while yet. Where next? Well, looking ahead, stocks are not, they're not cheap, they're pretty fully priced, and bond yields, well, as I said, the bonds are pretty expensive to begin with, and those yields are still firmly below even modest rates of inflation. That said, we do still feel that portfolios, balanced portfolios with a very healthy weighting in equities, are still capable of maintaining the real value of wealth uh, over the longer term, even if the prospective returns are probably smaller than they have been for some time. Hugo, the last time we did our podcast, it was at the beginning of April, so it was a couple of days after the sort of market troughed in late March. Kevin's alluded to the fact that the rebound has been very rapid, so the fastest bear market and then the fastest bull market. I guess my question to you is, you know, how surprised were you by that? And also, you know, how have the portfolios recovered, given that the last time we, we were here, we really were just sort of just post the troughs or what turned out to be the trough in the market? Yes. Uh, so we, the portfolio managers, were very surprised and perhaps a bit more so than uh, Kevin, but certainly not unprepared uh, by both how fast markets fell and then subsequently recovered. So when we were adding to positions during the crisis uh, in March and April primarily, we thought we were buying stocks at great prices when we looked back in a year or two's time. I didn't think we ever anticipated that some of them would, would bounce right back in just a few weeks. And where does this leave portfolios now that we've had the end of the second quarter? So having been down 11 to 12% at the end of the first quarter, they ended down around 3% at the end of June, albeit a bit more for euros and dollars and less for sterling portfolios, and that was really driven by exchange rate differentials. So they've recovered between two-thirds and three-quarters of the losses from the first quarter. And one of the most surprising things this year is that if one hadn't been paying attention to the coronavirus, perhaps if one was an alien from outer space, and the extraordinary turbulence in March, you could conclude that it's been a relatively quiet year, albeit disappointing to have given back some of 2019's gains. So, um, given that I'm not an alien, what would be interesting, I think, is to really understand what the main drivers of performance have been on the way back up. But also, given that the diversifying assets really did do exactly what we wanted them to do in the first quarter, have they given back all the ground that they that they added to the portfolios in the first quarter, in the second quarter? So the rebound was, was led by the equities primarily, and in part in some we added to during the crisis, which has been good to see. But the bounce back really hasn't been symmetrical. So some of the stocks uh, that are most economically sensitive to the coronavirus are still lagging. Uh, and there are some very pronounced dynamics within markets. So new economy and technology stocks, which are seen as big beneficiaries of the coronavirus, as this has been pre in accelerating the pre-existing shifts, such as e-commerce and teleconferencing, they've done very, very well. So this has played, for example, into the hands of Bears Capital, for, for example, that own payments company Square and the online retailer Wayfair. So Bears was up 66% in the second quarter, and they're actually up 86% from their low point in uh, March. 
And another example, the cable companies continue to be very resilient as there's tremendous demand for broadband with so many people working uh, from home. So the likes of Cable One, Charter, Comcast, they were all up 10, 15% over the quarter. MasterCard, Amex, they're seen as beneficiaries of the accelerating transition away from cash towards contactless. Nobody wants to touch cash anymore. If you, if you go into a shop, you'll see that most of them don't even accept cash. We can add ratings agencies to this list as well. So there's been a boom in bond issuance as companies have scrambled to refinance their balance sheets. So this is good news for S&P and Moody's, whose shares are close to, in the case of Moody's, and comfortably at all-time highs in the case of S&P. And finally, the Asian region was the first to be affected by the virus and really bounced back very strongly from it, uh, in stock market terms at least. So the Vander Fund, uh, managed by the team at Cedarburg, with a focus on China, uh, that's performed very, very well. With stocks like Tencent and Maotai, the spirits company, have been exceptionally strong. Ward Ferry, uh, with a sort of pan-Asian mandate, they've been very astute in how they traded their fund over the period, and again have done well. So they were up 32% last quarter. And so these, these two uh, are up 17 and 20% respectively for the year which is amazing, really, when we consider the headlines from China just a few months ago. So plenty of stocks and funds are enjoying 2020. However, other stocks and markets haven't fared as well. So banks and transport stocks such as Ryanair are still down for the year. And markets of countries such as the UK, particularly the domestically oriented stocks owned within Phoenix, for example, are struggling. But Wells Fargo and Lloyds, along with Berkshire Hathaway, which owns a lot of financials, were the only stocks held in portfolios that were down over the last quarter, around 2 to 3%. Disappointingly, this does mean that the two banks are still halved in value this uh, year. And the diversifiers, Hugo? Oh, yes. So, And then in terms of the diversifiers and whether they have given back all the ground they made in the first quarter, well, they've certainly given back some of their performance, which is what we would anticipate as equity markets bounced and volatility reduced. However, we monetized a portion of the directly held put options in the first quarter, and the Acura and Artemis funds also locked in some good gains. So the diversifiers are still having a good year for us. I am a little disappointed by the trend followers, though. The market decline and then the subsequent rebound was just it was just too fast for them. And so they haven't had many trends in equities uh, or other types of assets to uh, latch onto. So last time I asked you about the stocks that you were worried about, the ones that you described at the time, I believe, as being in the eye of the storm. What, what's happened, given that the storm, at least for now, has, uh, has somewhat passed? Yes, uh, I feel nervous saying that the storm has passed because we don't know quite what's uh, around the corner. But uh, as a reminder, uh, the ones that I described as being in the eye of the storm were Ryanair, so no planes were flying. Ashton, equipment hire was being heavily Im impacted. Uh, Middleby, all the restaurants essentially closed. And then the two banks, so Lloyds and Wells, and how they could be impacted by loan losses and uh, falling net interest margins. Of that group, and we were right in the middle of doing the analysis uh, um, at the time of the last podcast, of that group, the one that we felt less comfortable about was Middleby. This was the only one for whom the prospect of raising additional equity capital 
was a fairly high risk. And at the same time, we felt that the business model of acquiring and turning around smaller competitors would be more challenging for the next few years for them. And for these reasons, we sold the Middleby shares from balanced portfolios and we redeployed the capital elsewhere. For Ryanair and Ashtid, our analysis suggests that they will come out of this crisis with enhanced competitive positions. And if anything, our conviction has increased on those ones. And finally, the banks. Well, for the banks, we certainly acknowledge the risks and it, it feels like they've been disappointing investments forever. However, we do feel that the balance sheets are robust, certainly by historical standards, and the loan exposures look reasonable to us. So when we put this into the context of extremely low valuations, we're reluctant to sell the shares here, and, and we do feel that the risks are skewed to the upside. So you've mentioned a couple of transactions. It's been a very busy period for our implementation team, who, as you said last time, were flat out. Have you given them any a sort of respite or has it been nose to the grindstone while you've been busily doing things? Uh, yes. So uh, if, if we, uh, the portfolio managers, weren't persona non grata then, then we certainly are now. It's probably a good reminder for me to not go back into the office. So the first quarter was largely about topping up existing positions at attractive prices during the crisis. And this carried on into April. So we added some more Deer and some more Amex. Then we had the major rebound. And since then, we've changed tack. We started reducing. So we sold some S&P and Moody's in June. The stocks have been very strong and we felt the position sizing was too high. And we did a similar trim of the Bears Capital Fund after its dramatic rebound. Uh, we've also added a new position in Booking Holdings, the online travel agency or OTA. So having analyzed the OTAs in great detail, that they have a lot of advantages within their ecosystem and booking rules the roost. It's a massive scale business and it acts as the aggregator of both the customers on one side and the hotels on the other. So we, we started with a relatively small position and we'll take advantage of further bouts of market volatility if we see them to build it up over time. And finally, on the diversifying side of the portfolio, we restructured the put option book a bit, selling half of the two in-the-money Eurostocks options and buying more puts further out of the money. And this has the effect of giving portfolios more downside protection in the event of another major market fall. Now, this isn't our central expectation, uh, but we always prefer to prepare than predict. Yeah. And currencies, Hugo, I mean... You know, when we look back to April, the pound had recovered somewhat versus the dollar having having hit, I think, 114 at one point and was back at sort of 123. What's happened since then and, and what are your views there? Yeah, so we've been keeping a close eye on currencies and very much liaising with the Kevin and Victor as well. And however, after all of that uh, volatility back in March, you know, with the, some pundits on the telly predicting the pound back to parity against the dollar, there's actually been very little movement in any of the big currency pairs, which is probably a function of central bank action. So it's a, it's a very good reminder of why we shouldn't pay any attention to the financial media. So we continue to feel, and this is very much backed up by Kevin and Victor's analysis, that the pound is looking oversold. And should we see it fall much below the March lows and go closer to parity against the dollar, then we'll probably look to hedge some dollars back into pounds. But at the moment, there isn't anything to be, to be done. 
So Hugo, this is my, you know, it's the question I always ask you, which is what are you most excited about? I'm going to tell you now that you're not allowed to say Ryanair. So what, what are you excited about? I mentioned it earlier, and there's been tremendous dispersion recently between different industries, between different markets. And some places, you know, think the NASDAQ, for example, are euphoric, others are in despair. And so for us, this feels like what academics like to call market inefficiencies. And um, really for us, it just means that the opportunity set feels richer than uh, normal. So we're looking at a number of opportunities, but also looking specifically at some opportunities, both direct and through third party funds that seek to benefit from the energy transition. That, again, looks like a major disruption to us and will throw up a, a lot of opportunities to having been last quarter very much in review mode, really around the existing um, investments within the portfolio, kicking the tires, thinking about the impact of the coronavirus. We very much moved back into looking forward mode and looking for new opportunities. So um, watch this uh, space. Great. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our uh, podcast today. Please do keep sending any questions that you have to your client advisor. Our podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. So please do subscribe to receive them as they're released. Thank you, Hugo. Thank you, Kevin. Um, and thank you all very much for listening. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.